0: Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week, I speak to Ben Tarnoff, author of Internet for the People, the fight for our digital future. We talk about the origins of the internet uh, and how it was enclosed uh, into the privatized system that we have today, as well as how we could work together to build a different model for the internet. As always, thank you so much to all of our amazing patrons. You are the ones who make this show possible. If you have not already signed up to become a patron, please consider doing so at patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please do share this episode on social media, tagging at aworldtowinpod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, here is this week's interview with Ben Tarnoff. How are you doing today, Ben?
1: Um, Well, thanks so much for having me, Grace.
0: Thank you so much for being here. So, the first question I want to ask you um, about the book is that there is this interesting tension at the beginnings of the internet. Um, although, you know, whether or not it's actually a tension is, I think, an interesting question. The fact that it never would have happened without a huge amount of public investment and the kind of open source ethos, but also uh, that early investment reflected the particular interests of the US military. How do you think that that? um influence the kind of origins and development of the internet.
1: Yeah, it's a good question that that helps us get to where the internet comes from. You know, in the United States we often say that the Pentagon is how we do industrial policy and I think the internet is a useful illustration of that. Here is this breakthrough technology that requires billions of dollars of public money to invent to develop to the point of maturity. But in order for such an experiment to be conceivable, it had to come out of military funding, and in particular DARPA, which is the Pentagon's R&D arm. And there is a specific military pretext for developing the first internet protocol, a protocol being a set of rules for how computers can communicate. And the first internet protocol is developed in the mid 1970s. And the military pretext for this development is to create a way for computers, large, powerful computers in the United States, to be able to communicate with smaller mobile computers that would have been loaded into Jeeps or airplanes in theater, actually deployed in a battlefield. In other words, the purpose of the internet as it was invented in the 1970s by Pentagon researchers was to bring computing power to the battlefield. So there was actually a specific war-making incentive that made the whole thing possible.
0: Now, this obviously wasn't the only place where kind of internet-like technologies were being developed at the time. There were various different experiments inspired by kind of network theory and systems theory that were taking place in lots of different kinds of regimes. Is there a way of imagining, you know, a thought experiment, a different kind of internet emerging? And what might that have looked like, say, if it had come out of, you know, the Soviet Union or the uh, more kind of decentralized systems that were envisioned by some of the early systems theorists and attempted to be uh, used in places like Chile at the time? The international
1: aspect of this is quite interesting because as you suggest in your question, Grace, it brings to mind a lot of different counterfactuals, right? What would an internet built by the Soviets have looked like? In fact, the scholar Ben Peters has a wonderful book called How Not to Network a Nation that explores some of the early Soviet networks and in particular, their proposed role in economic planning. We could also think of what would an internet modeled off of Cybersyn look like, the, the famous experiment in Chile. Another system that has drawn a lot of interest in this regard is Minitel in France. So there are alternative ways of getting computers to talk to one another, different types of networking and indeed internetworking experiments that were unfolding in some cases contemporaneous with the development of the first internet protocols. But I should also point out that although the, the money came from the US military, the internetworking community out of which these ideas were being developed was very much an international community. There were important contributions from the United Kingdom, from France, from elsewhere. So the ideas were very international, but at the end of the day, it took quite a lot of money to Turn those ideas into an implementation, right? We're talking about, again, billions of dollars. And the only institution that was capable of sustaining that level of investment was the US military, because this is a period, it's a little bit off of the peak, but we're still, if you think about in the 70s, we're still in that era of Cold War funding for military research. There is still the enemy of the Soviet Union, which can motivate that kind of investment in basic research of the kind that would trickle down into the rest of the economy, but its origin point had to have a military pretext. And that's why DARPA, you know, to this day, but particularly in the mid-century, played such an important role in generating various breakthroughs, which would go on to become the basis of the tech industry.
0: I mean, this model is really interesting because it does show that this binary that we often have and we often view as capital, as structuring capitalist societies as between states and markets, the public and the private sector, is in practice not as clear-cut as we would like to think. And that a lot of particularly kind of significant technological innovation or any kind of innovation that requires, as you say, large amounts of investment comes from this kind of like fusion of public-private power, these kind of joint ventures between often private enterprises and capitalist states, but also often just, as you were saying, kind of coming out of scientific communities that end up organizing themselves under state institutions or even within the private sector. What do you think that the origins of the internet and actually the development after that of the internet and internet technologies can tell us about um, yeah, this kind of fusion of public and private power that really governs most capitalist societies. And yeah, how does that shape the way the internet works today?
1: Well, I, I think you said it well, Grace. We, we shouldn't think of the state and the market as operating independently or even antagonistically to one another. I think that that's an artifact of bourgeois ideology, which does work for uh, the people who are Promoting it. I mean, there is a reason that the tech industry has conveniently forgotten its origins in public investment because it wants to make the case that Steve Jobs sat in a garage and came up with a brilliant idea. In other words, the myth of how innovation happens, that it happens uh, in an entirely market driven way, that it's a very individualistic uh, model of enterprise, does a lot of work for the industry. But in fact, it's not historically. Accurate, as you point out, and particularly when it comes to the tech industry. Mariana Matsukado has kind of written the classic book on this, but when we think about the major technological innovations that form the basis of the contemporary tech industry, they virtually all trace their origins to government-funded research. And that is again a fact that is quite obvious to the people who study the history. But is one that is politically inconvenient, let's say, to the leadership class of the tech industry. And it has, and for that reason, has been systematically forgotten.
0: How and why did we get to the situation that we're in today, where the infrastructure and the software that we use is run by a handful of very powerful private corporations? Um, how, in other words, I suppose, was the internet enclosed from its origins as this kind of more open source and initially kind of public infrastructure?
1: So I think to answer that question, we need to tell a little bit more of the history of the internet. I mentioned before that the first internet protocol, which is really the the birth point of the internet, is developed in the mid-1970s. And what happens after that is that protocol is used to interconnect various fixed line networks at the Pentagon. And over the course of the 1980s, the internet, as a network of networks, as an internetwork, comes into being. Over the course of the 1980s and into the early 1990s, the internet remains under federal control, but it becomes civilianized, passes under the control of the National Science Foundation, which is a federal agency tasked with supporting basic research. And in the early 1990s, the National Science Foundation faces a dilemma where there's a lot more demand for the internet than there is capacity to sustain it. At that point, the internet is used primarily by academic researchers who use it to collaborate with one another. But increasingly, there is growing demand for people to get online. The World Wide Web is becoming available. Graphical web browsers are making the internet more usable. So what the National Science Foundation decides to do is to pass the internet, specifically the pipes of the internet, the physical infrastructure of the internet, into private hands. Now, privatization was the plan all along. The federal government never had any intention of running the internet indefinitely, but it is accelerated and it takes a particularly extreme form thanks to extensive industry input. So, Lobbying efforts ensure that this particular moment in privatization, which has culminated in 1995, takes an especially comprehensive form, which is to say there is no compensation at this handover. There are no terms over how the private sector can develop the network. And crucially, there is no enduring federal or public foothold in the new privatized internet. I should say one remaining point here, privatization of the internet was a process, not an event. So this handover in 1995, it's an important inflection point in the story of privatization. But in fact, privatization continues from there. We need to see privatization really as a years-long and even decades-long process.
0: When we think about tech companies today at the origins of the internet, we often think of the most obvious ones like Amazon and Google and whatever. But you mentioned eBay as a microcosm of the particular form that capitalism takes on the internet. How did eBay come about and become a model for profiteering from the internet?
1: So to return to our story, 1995 is actually a pivotal year, because not only does it mark this handover from the public sector to the private sector of the infrastructure of the internet, it also sets in motion what will become known as the dot-com boom. And the dot-com boom, as we may remember, is a period in which a number of different companies, a number of different investors are trying to figure out how do we make money from the internet, right? How do we make money not just selling access to people, right? As an ISP might, selling you a subscription to the internet, but how do we make money from what people do when they're online? How do we make money, in other words, not from access, but from activity? Now, from the vantage point of 2022, we might think that that's a fairly easy problem to solve, but in fact, it was a very difficult problem to solve, and they spent years trying to solve it. I single out eBay because eBay is uniquely successful in solving this problem early on. And in the process develops a set of techniques, a template even, that will form the basis for the rise of the so-called platforms in the early 2000s. eBay figures out right from the start, right from the mid-90s, how to create a very profitable business from users' activity. And it does so by developing three distinct elements. It is a middleman, which is to say it facilitates interactions. It connects, in the case of eBay, buyers and sellers. It is a sovereign, which means it writes the rules for those interactions. It governs and plays a state-like role in managing and overseeing those interactions. And it creates and benefits from network effects. The more people interacting on the site, the more valuable the site becomes. And in these three elements, through the fusion of these three elements, it creates a kind of community market. It leverages the social advantages of the internet, which have long been enjoyed by internet users since the 1980s, but it applies those social qualities to the task of profit making. And this is a breakthrough that will be followed by the later empires of the internet that we take for granted today, like Google and Facebook and others.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned the tech bubble there, because often you know this is um, ignored in the longer history of the big tech companies, which are seen as kind of emerging after of really growing to power after the financial crisis. But it's really important because it's really hard to imagine the development of modern technology without the kind of massive availability of capital that was there at the origins of the internet. And actually, in that period after the financial crisis, during which these other big tech companies kind of grew and, and embedded themselves, there was this kind of huge wall of money that was looking for high returns after the kind of end of the financial crisis that we had at the end of the 1980s, early 1990s. And with the kind of very loose monetary policy that was being pursued at the time, by central banks, which is a kind of forerunner to the um, the policies that we've had uh, since the financial crisis, um, those kind of quantitative easing policies that really pumped money into financial markets. So you had these huge pots of money that were owned and controlled by large financial institutions, whether those were kind of banks or uh, big asset managers or hedge funds or you know venture capitalists, and. That money was really seeking out returns, and as you say, those tech companies were looking for a long time for a way to mobilise their you know position and power in the internet, those network effects to be able to produce profit. But what that wall of money facilitated was a long period of time where those firms were able to build up substantial market power, often without actually profiting for a long time. And it's hard, you know, I think to imagine a firm like Amazon, for example, which was able to kind of uh, grow and grow and grow and grow and enclose more markets without actually demonstrating its profitability for a very long time without those wider conditions. So how do you think that the particular macroeconomic context in which these firms emerged has shaped the development of those firms? And is that, you know, how is it going to shift as we move into a different macroeconomic environment?
1: Yeah, you could really tell you know, the story of the modern internet just by reference to interest rates. I mean, I think that would be mm-hmm. a very interesting way to tell the story because as you indicate, you know, it, it makes different types of business models possible. I mean, interestingly, the moment in which the so-called platforms emerge, that the complex computational systems that we take for granted today, which organize the modern internet, is in this post crash moment so it's after the the bust in 2000 and 2001 and in fact at a firm like Amazon which you alluded to the days of easy money are over and they have to figure out how are we actually going to make money you know Google is in a slightly different position but similarly investors are starting to lose their patience and so that provides an impetus for developing some of the techniques that, in fact, are now the basis of very profitable business models like data collection and and data monetization that comes out of Google in this early 2000s period. That, in turn, however, can help generate yet another bubble. I mean, the paradigmatic case of the dynamic that you're describing is not even Amazon, but Uber. You know, Amazon actually did manage to turn a profit within a relatively short period of time, but Uber is a, a baroque kind of comical illustration of what easy money can mean for a tech firm, and has you know has 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 suffered a bit in this tighter monetary environment. But when there is so much cash floating around, you know, investors can afford to be patient. They can throw endless amounts of money. Uh, at a firm like Uber, in the hopes that it will someday become another Google, in the case of Uber, though, one thing that I, I like to to emphasize is that you know, Uber has made a lot of people quite rich for its early investors. it in fact, has been one of the the best venture capital investments of all time. Mm-hmm. The question of course, is you know when you get in and when you get out you know so so i think when we say as shorthand well uber is so unprofitable it has in fact been very profitable for certain early investors i mean travis Kalanick, of course has has made a bundle from uber but it's not uh you know a cash flow positive business model in the way that the other firms that preceded it who are really kind of remain the the apex predators of uh the internet like google amazon facebook and others have managed to do
0: So do you think now that at least compared to where we were kind of 10 or 20 years ago, that era of easy money is uh, is over, or at least the, the latest cycle has definitely come to an end, that the big tech companies that emerged during that time and which were able to kind of consolidate during that time are fairly unchallengeable? Or do you think that we are on the cusp of seeing kind of new forms of innovation that mean that the big tech firms could potentially be replaced. Because, I mean, it looks recently as though the kind of ridiculous dynamics that we've seen in in VC have have come to a head with, you know, all of these firms investing in just endless different versions of the same kind of Deliveroo-style platforms that are like bringing consumers Diet Coke within 10 minutes, and which grew obviously during the pandemic, and which have really been hit since then. Is it the case that the kind of the the rise of the big tech companies has now happened and they're, you know, really in place and that is going to define the structure of the market for years to come? Um, Or are we on the verge of seeing a kind of a new wave of big tech companies that can potentially come to power and and innovate their ways to the top in a kind of Schumpeterian dynamic of the kind that would suggest a healthy market?
1: Well, I wouldn't want to make any firm predictions about the future. But I'm not particularly optimistic that any type of major disruption is on the horizon. Certainly, a tighter monetary environment makes things harder for startups. It makes things harder for companies that are just burning cash, trying to grow market share. And we've already seen that. You know, we've seen uh, certain companies go out of business. We've seen layoffs and hiring freezes, uh, even, even among the, the majors. You know, Even the majors are going to feel a little bit of pain from this. But it's a very different market environment than we were in in 2000, 2001, in the sense that there are some very profitable businesses that have been built. And the stock price of Google or Alphabet, if you like, has certainly gone down. Facebook's has suffered. But these are, at the end of the day, still quite profitable businesses and you know the the tide can go out but you still have these you know fairly large boulders in place if you can permit that metaphor so i don't think that we're in a situation now where a round of upstarts will manage to dislodge the market power of these big firms because it's it's quite significant but you know it will it it will change i think the the landscape will change particularly the edges. You know. I, th- I think the other question mark here is not just monetary policy, but regulatory policy. You know, Will there be any real push, particularly from Congress on antitrust? And there have been some indications towards that. We're certainly in a much more pro-regulatory, pro-antitrust environment than we've ever been. But I think there are still some open questions and some doubts, frankly, about how far that antitrust moment will go.
0: Right, because you know the other option, rather than new firms coming to kind of uh, subvert the power of the existing giants, is that any new innovation that does take place ends up just being bought up in one way or another by the, the existing tech firms because you know they have all this cash, even in you know even in an environment like the one where they still have enough cash, enough market power to be able to do that. And, you know, one of the good examples of that is, well, perhaps not an example of innovation itself, but certainly an innovation for capital was cryptocurrency, which was initially envisioned as this kind of, you know, like a brilliant decentralized thing that could exist outside of both the power of the state and of private institutions. And yet now one of the big frontiers for all these firms is thinking about how do we use some of these insights to develop our own private payment systems? What do you think... What are they working on at the moment in that in that sphere? And, you know, is there something to be worried about what's going on with the big tech companies in crypto, basically?
1: Yeah, I, I have managed to avoid talking about crypto as much as possible, because it's a subject that I think just bores me at some deep, deep level. Fair enough.
0: I won't make you talk about it for too long because it is very, yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's an important, I, I'm not proud of this. It's certainly an important subject. There are people who are doing great work on it. I think you know, crypto to me is interesting for ideological reasons, I think less for technical ones. I don't find the technology terribly interesting, but ideologically, it does return a lot of people to the kind of utopianism of the early web. It makes a lot of people, particularly Gen Xers and young boomers, feel like it's the 1990s again, which I think explain some of the emotional investment that venture capitalists like Marc Andresen, for instance, have in it. It kind of makes them feel young again, if I can be no. permitted to psychologize Marc Andresen. <laughs> so I, I think that you know accounts for much of its success. Obviously, it's also you know, a get-rich-quick scheme for a number of unsavory characters. It has the quality of a scam and a multi-level marketing enterprise. And there are people making money on it. But I think the kind of psychological dynamics of it are quite interesting. And I think that also helps me engage a little bit more sympathetically with it than some of my peers and you know other participants of of the political left, which is there are people who are drawn to crypto, not so much because they think they can use it to you know, take advantage of someone and make a lot of money, although there are plenty of people who fit that description, but rather because it evokes a kind of utopian, decentralized, more positive future for the internet. And I think that is a starting point for a conversation, right? Because that at least has the acknowledgement that there is something wrong with the internet as it's currently constructed and that one of the things, indeed the core thing, is the concentration of power, right? That is a, that is a correct recognition. There, there is a kernel of truth to that statement. The problem is that crypto, as you've suggested, doesn't solve that problem. It simply reconcentrates power in different hands. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that we can engage with people who are crypto curious and redirect their interest to another channel, I think that can be productive.
0: What can all this teach us about the development of technology under capitalism? Marx talks about this a lot in the Grundrisse, about the peculiarities of technological development under capitalism, which is a social system in which innovation becomes a kind of business in in itself, and that reflects the kinds of innovations that we see. How have those dynamics played out in the tech space and in the kind of technology, not just that we have, but that we're kind of able to imagine?
1: Well, I'm very influenced by the historian David Noble in thinking about the relationship between technology and society. And Noble makes the point, which may feel obvious, I hope feels obvious to your listeners, but is not always sufficiently acknowledged, particularly in, in Marxist circles, which is that We shouldn't think of a firm distinction between the forces and the relations of production. This has been a kind of unfortunate tendency in some Marxist thinking for a long time, which is you have the machines and then you have the social relations in which the machines are embedded. And if you revolutionize the social relations, you can put the machines to a different purpose. So one thinks here of Lenin's enthusiasm for Taylorism, for instance, that you know we could simply import certain techniques and productive processes from capitalism and put them to work in building socialism. Now, that doesn't typically work because relations and forces are bound up with one another. In fact, those are simply abstractions that we use to talk about things in a rough way, but don't correspond precisely to what's happening on the ground. And again, I think hopefully that insight Resonates with people feels feels true, but I think is is particularly useful when we think about the modern internet. For instance, one of the slogans that sometimes circulates in uh, left corners of Twitter is something along the lines of "nationalized Facebook," Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And you know, if that's if that's kind of a polemical point, or people are letting off steam, that's totally cool. I don't mean to be like difficult or pedantic about tweets, but if we were to dig into what that might mean, it is. A reiteration of this disastrous separation of forces and relations. Mm -hmm. Because Facebook is designed with a particular end in mind. It's an architecture that has been optimized to maximize user engagement. And in fact, that optimization is what produces so many social harms. It is the basis of its business model, of course, because it needs to maximize user engagement in order to monetize user attention. But that, in turn, has made it a very powerful megaphone for right-wing propaganda. Sensationalistic and bigoted content circulate so widely within this architecture because of certain optimizations that have been engineered into this architecture. So the notion that we could simply pick this up and organize a different ownership model around it and expect substantially different results is misleading. In other words we have to find ways to build new architectures to develop collective embodied spaces of imagination where we can build completely different kinds of technologies and i acknowledge the difficulty of this because we're never starting from scratch right anything with post-capitalist politics, we're always having to build the airplane in mid-air. There are a lot of contradictions. There are a lot of difficulties. There are a lot of limitations. But that is the task, you know not simply inheriting capitalist technology and putting a socialist label on it, but doing the hard work of developing socialist technologies for ourselves.
0: Which leads us very nicely into the next question, which is to take the title of your book, what might a people's internet actually mm-hmm. look like?
1: Well, I can give you the North Star version first, which is an internet for the people would be one in which people and not profit rule. And in order to get there, I think we need a project of deprivatization. What would deprivatization look like in practice? Well, I think it depends on the layer of the internet that we're talking about. When we talk about the bottom of the stack, the so-called pipes of the internet, the physical infrastructure of the internet, I think we have a pretty good model for what deprivatization would look like in practice, which is publicly and cooperatively owned broadband networks, of the sort that we have. You know, more than 900 here in the United States. These are networks that tend to provide better service at lower cost than corporate counterparts like Comcast. And crucially, can encode democratic practices that involve users in their everyday operations. In other words, community members are able to actually participate in choices about how infrastructure is developed and deployed. When we move up the stack, however, to the realm of the so called platforms where we actually experience the internet, the strategies for deprivatization become more. Diverse, right? Because this is a more diverse realm of the internet. Facebook is in fact much more different in its technical composition to Google than Comcast is to AT, to mention a couple of the major American internet service providers. So our strategies have to become a bit more variable. We also have to acknowledge that at this layer of the internet, we don't have experiments that are nearly as mature. But we do have some really interesting communities, which I talk about in the book, that are developing projects that give us a sense of what an internet for the people might look like at this layer of the internet. So I talk a little bit about the decentralized web community, which is developing projects for things like decentralized social media, Uh, projects like Mastodon, if any of your listeners have heard of Mastodon. Also uh, refer to the platform cooperativism community. And these are folks that are building worker-owned app-based services. So there are some interesting experiments that are being developed that give us a kind of rough draft, if you like, of what an internet for the people at that layer might look like. But ultimately, as I said before, we need spaces of imagination. We need spaces where ordinary people can get connected with technical resources and actually build the online services that make their everyday lives better.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit more, if, you, if we can, about examples, current or historic, of these you know, spaces, as you say, of imagination, uh, where people are imagining and also building new technologies based on you know, different kinds of, of social relations that exist within those institutions, if not in society as a whole. So you talk about the technology networks that the GLC kind of invested in, which I've actually written about quite you know a little bit in my own book, which looks at democratic planning as one of the legacies of the Lucas plan that emerged in the UK um, when workers at Lucas Aerospace basically to prevent their firm going under when it couldn't be nationalised, said, well, here are lots of different ways that we could kind of put these resources to, to public use rather than um, rather than kind of losing our jobs and collapsing the firm altogether. And the kind of democratic spirit and also the kind of technological prowess of some of those workers that were involved in that, It didn't work in in Lucas, Lucas ended up, um, you know, being sold sold for parts, but that was preserved in one form or another by the GLC, which at the time was, you know, quite left wing, which is why Thatcher obviously tried to destroy it. And one of the ways in which it was preserved was through these technology networks that sought to develop new kinds of technologies that could be put to use within the public sector, do things like link up innovators with sometimes private businesses, often kind of selling that and and using that model as a way to raise money, but also getting people involved, you know, from the the ground up with this kind of these, these innovative projects, training them, you know, giving them the, the capacity to kind of build solutions for themselves. Can you talk a little bit about that, the spirit that that entailed, And whether or not we might be able to kind of start rebuilding networks like that in places where you have a level of left or progressive control over, say, municipal government.
1: I love the example of the technology networks. That was a great inspiration to me in the book because it provides a very concrete example of what it might look like to think of imagination as a embodied material act that requires material resources to support in other words it's not imagination as the lone genius sitting in a you know, garage in palo alto and coming up with some masterful new technology but imagination as something that people do together and that requires certain material inputs to be successful I hope that there is a way to leverage progressive municipal power to develop something like technology networks today. I think today it would look more like hacker spaces or maker spaces, although hopefully with uh, more support and more connectivity to social movements. You know, there there are a number of local government initiatives throughout the United States that are designed to attract Technology investments and these are often not very successful because the hope is that they can, you know, raise wages and and raise investment by teaching people to code, you know, in places that are quite far from the core, techno-financial hubs of the West and East Coast. But if we could redirect those efforts towards something like this, I I think it would be a really positive step. You, You mentioned the the Lucas Plan too, and I and I think that's an important note, because when we think about the act of imagining a better internet and what type of resources will be needed towards that end, of course, we want to draw in ordinary people to understand their needs and preferences and have those drive uh, this imaginative process. But in terms of where we get the experts, where we get the practitioners who can help us implement some of these ideas, we're going to have to draw them from the tech industry itself. And you know, I'm I'm a tech worker, someone who works in the industry, and someone who has been involved in conversations along these lines about what might a better technological world look like. How could we develop something like the Lucas Plan within our own workplaces? Uh, how could we agitate for it? So, you know, there are some complexities here because we don't want technologists to be in the driving seat, but They do have skills that would be invaluable in imagining and indeed implementing a better internet.
0: Let's talk a little bit about tech worker organizing. You mentioned that you yourself are a tech worker, and there have been lots of attempts in lots of different places and ways to try and get tech workers organized, either just to kind of improve their paying conditions or to resist some of the more... Um, extractive and oppressive business strategies of the firms for which they work. What do you think are the potentials of organizing in this space? Um, and what do you think are some of the barriers? At Like, how can we start thinking about linking the struggles that tech workers are facing up with other struggles that are taking place in areas of the economy where perhaps workers are even more exploited?
1: Well, tech worker is a very expansive category, right? There are a lot of different types of people who do various types of work in different employment relations for a tech company. So Apple store workers, for instance, who are beginning to unionize in the United States, these are tech workers, right? So is, of course, the software engineer at Apple, who makes a much better salary, enjoys better benefits and better work conditions and so on. So part of the challenge when we think about the opportunities and the challenges in organizing tech workers is first defining well, who are we actually talking about? Tech is this quite expansive term. In fact, which, which companies, which industries are even under that label is also contested You know, with, with various types of working conditions. I think what we've seen uh, over the past five, six years is collective action at a variety of fronts. There are the more proletarianized tech workers like the Apple Store workers, like Facebook cafeteria workers, uh, shuttle bus drivers, security guards, data center technicians, folks who occupy... Lines of work, employment relations that we would consider straightforwardly proletarian, you know, who have been organizing with varying degrees of success, but in many cases uh, forming unions, negotiating contracts. And then we have. A more elevated, rel- more relatively privileged, let's say, layer of tech workers who are the software engineers, the product designers, uh, the product managers, the folks who, you know, when you close your eyes and imagine someone who works for Google, this is probably who you would imagine, right? And we have also seen some impressive collective action campaigns. Uh, Among this group, you know, we had, for instance, the Google walkout back in 2018, where thousands of Google workers from all over the world staged a work stoppage to protest sexual harassment and abuse within Google. Collective action among this category tends to be more contradictory because the class location is more contradictory and that can be, you know, a whole another conversation about how to parse the precise class location of this set of workers. But suffice to say, you know, it, it because their working conditions are better because their salaries are better, often the issues that they're organizing around tend to take a different form. You know, these workers are obviously not immune to racialized and gendered forms of harassment and abuse. So that has become an important organizing issue, so too have concerns about the social harms of particular technologies, Pentagon contracts, technologies that amplify racial inequality, for instance. So again, the organizing terrain in which issues activate people, and frankly, how many people you can activate in the first place, tend to vary depending on which piece of this vast tech workforce you're talking about.
0: Um, And that, I think, is all we have time for. Ben, thank you so much for joining me on A World to Win Today. Your book, Internet for the People, is available now, and I would encourage our listeners to go out and uh, and buy it because we've only scratched the surface of uh, the brilliant content that is available there. So thank you so much for joining me today, Ben.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Grace.